0: Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Find Pears Taplines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Dark beer is delicious, right, Taplines listener? I mean, I certainly think so. And you can't respond because it's a podcast. So I'm just going to assume you agree and move on. <laughs> The rest of the world has been clued into luxurious delights of stouts, porters, and other ink ales for centuries, but the post-prohibition American beer drinker had a limited selection of mostly lighter beers for most of the 20th century. As a nation, we therefore lost some of our taste for dark, layered, complex beers, looking askance at them as heavy gut-busters. It was a logical response from a drinking public primed... Um, light and color, light and calorie adjunct bloggers that were then locked in fierce competition for supermarket supremacy, as we've discussed in previous taplines episodes with the inimitable historian and friend of the show, Maureen Ogle. Go check those episodes out if you haven't yet. But that assumption was also wrong, as you likely know. And a dozen years ago in Colorado, one brewery looked to nitrogen to approve it to the masses. When Left Hand Brewing opened for business outside of Denver in the early 90s, the plan wasn't to become known nationwide as the Milk Stout Brewery, or the Nitro Brewery, or certainly not the Nitro Milk Stout Brewery. But when it introduced its chocolatey, none-too-heavy Milk Stout in the aughts, people loved it, and especially the silky-smooth Nitro Draft Pour, with which it quickly became synonymous. Co-founder and CEO Eric Wallace and the left-hand team started wondering, hey, if Guinness is able to package beers non-nitro, couldn't we? That simple question turned out to have a complicated and costly answer, and Guinness wasn't too keen on revealing it. But Wallace and company eventually figured it out anyway. The result was left-hand milk stout nitro in the bottle. Which debuted in all its widget-free, hard-pouring, light-mouth feeling <laughs> glory at the Great American Beer Festival in 2011. It was the first American brewery to pull off nitro in the bottle, and the first craft brewery, too, of course. Today, Eric Wallace joins Taplines to talk about how it all went down. It's Left Hand Brewing co-founder and CEO Eric Wallace. It's Milk Stout Nitro It's the Emergence of American Craft Beers Nitro Pioneer. And it's all right here, right now, on VinePairs Taplines. Ooh, listener, you feel that? Feels a little smooth in here. An absence of turbulence. We're silky. We're velvety. We are cruising on all cylinders here in the Taplines studio today because we're joined by a man with a plan. To give Americans uh, their nitro beer experience. I'm talking, of course, about Eric Wallace, the chief executive officer and uh, co founder of the one, the only left hand brewing in Longmont, Colorado. Eric, welcome to Taplines,
1: my man. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here.
0: Uh, Eric, you're joining us from left hand. You're in Longmont. I understand there's a little bit of construction out your way at the moment.
1: Yeah, I'm watching them build a bridge right outside my window uh, across <laughs> the the, ban- the banks of the mighty St. Vrain.
0: Okay, well, uh, thank you for joining us on what is, I'm sure, a chaotic uh, and maybe a little bit of a cacophonous day uh in longmont although we can't hear it here so we appreciate the uh the sound quality that you've been able to deliver for us uh here in the taplines virtual studio but enough about what's going on in longmont today because, as our taplines listeners know, Eric, we this is a history podcast. We talk about modern beer history, you know, everything from the post prohibition era right o- up onto uh, the present day uh, as we're recording this in late twenty twenty three. But we're going to be looking back uh, today. You're here to to talk about a seminal moment, I think, not only in Left Hand's history as a brewery, but also in uh, uh, the American craft beer landscape, um, because uh, Left Hand was pivotal, was pioneering when it came to, you know, bringing uh, nitro beer um, to the American masses. I mean, obviously, there were some other examples of nitro beer, but in, when uh, no one had really ever wed uh, craft beer and nitro um, before Left Hand. So we're here to talk about today. Eric, we have the Tap lines time machine, uh, and I usually turn it over to the guest to ask them where they believe this story should Begin. Left hand, of course, founded in 1993, put out your first beer in 1994. Do we start there? Do we start before? When does the nitro piece of the puzzle come into the picture,
1: Eric? Well, nitro came in certainly after we started, um, but before we started packaging milk stout nitro. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. I mean, a lot of breweries, I think back then, Figured out it's fairly straightforward to take a, a a blended gas and you know force carbonate a, a keg to a to a nitro spec or pretty damn close to sure. a nitro spec and and pour it through your own tap room and that's that's um, kind of how we started. I mean the milk stout hit the market, just the straight CO2 milk stout hit the market, and we we as a as a seasonal in the, the late '90s. And, and we were nitrogenating that a little bit here and there in, into kegs. And more and more people, when they tasted it, said, oh, yeah, if you could, if you could make some of that for me, I, I would put it on. So we started playing around with how do we do it on a repeated basis, consistently, quality, and enough, and enough to empty a, a bright tank, you know? <laughs> right. Back then, it's like we had 20-barrel bright tanks in, in the 60s um, yeah. back in the early days. So it's like how do we or, or 40s? We how do we how do we get that how do we get that going? And so we we tried a bunch of different ways. We tried a bunch of different equipment and and all kinds of stuff and learned it. I think we learned most of the ways you can fail at at doing it. <laughs> and which which made us probably made us better in the end. But we we started doing quite a bit of, of draft and and a couple of our guys here in-house said, Man, if we the draft is working. And we have CO2 package in glass. It's like yeah. what if we could do what if we could do what if we could do nitro in glass? Because we didn't have a canning line yet. We didn't our canning line didn't come into play until 2015. And so we we started investing a little bit of money and running some experiments and playing, you know, with James's law and gas solubility and the you know temperature charts and all of that. And Trying to get closer and closer, and seeing seeing what could happen. Working with uh, with OI, our glass supplier, you know, working with working with them a little bit on what can we do in the bottle. And at, over the course of a couple of years and a couple hundred thousand dollars of test equipment and R and D, yeah, R It took us a while, and it was expensive. Um, we we started getting closer and closer. And I remember there was there was kind of a critical. Conversation. I was upstairs in Mark and Jake's office one day, and they're like, "Here we are. You know, we're playing around. We're getting closer, closer and closer and closer." And they said, "We need to spend. There was some crazy number, fifty thousand dollars on this piece of equipment or whatever." I said, "Wait a minute. All right, where are we so far? How close are we?" And we were, we were, we were making progress. I said, "Let's, (laughs) let's see." How close we can actually get before I just go out and keep writing checks. We're already a lot of money into this thing. We didn't know if we could get there or not. Right. But we we known that Guinness had done it without a widget for a, for a brief period of time. And there were some weird things about that package because they had a big neck label on it that covered a big – there was a big headspace up here in the top. Yeah, yeah. And, and it had, it, it, I, I haven't seen those packages in years. But we're like, there's something going on here, and we – we need to figure it out. That was when, when did, when was Guinness, like when did Guinness start bottling? Do you remember? Like, cause we're we about talking about him. We're, we're back in what? 2000. Like the odds or something. Right? 2009, yeah. 2010. We were working on this. Uh, 2011 is when we, when we, you know, we did the big rollout in September. Sure. But, so um, you
0: knew it was possible. We, we and, knew like, that they yeah, figured yeah.
1: something out. We didn't know if we could do it in our kind of bottle. We, How's it gonna handle? How's a six-pack? You know, how, how is rattling it gonna all of these different questions from a safety standpoint because these bottles operate at a higher they operate at a higher pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. you're dealing with nitrogen, which is mm-hmm. far less soluble than CO2. So all of that technical stuff we we're working through, we're measuring, we're buying all this equipment we didn't have in order to actually know exactly what's going on in there. And a bunch of trial and error a, a couple of minor injuries later we were able <laughs> oh, to no. uh, we're we were able to we got to the point where we were we were right there it's like okay if we can pour this blind and our te- our panel our our validated panel you know can't tell the difference then we're there that's that mm. was kind of we're that's what we're going for we don't want it to be oh that's pretty good for a for a bottle, bottle we wanted weird. it to be spot on and that's where the the hard pour came on you know if you look look right here we're pouring straight in into the glass
0: sure for our listening audience that's not watching the video um what eric is showing is on every milk stout nitro bottle there's a little graphic that describes the hard pour eric for the benefit of our listening audience today uh would you describe the hard pour the technique for anyone who doesn't know what it what uh what you're describing here
1: yeah, on the side of the label, written upside down so that there is absolutely no way to, <laughs> to, to screw this up, though I have seen it screwed up thousands of times. But on the bottle itself, it says, activate your nitrogen, pour hard to release the nitro magic. You can, you can go onto a little website and see, but you basically uncap it, it's gotta be cold, uncap it and make it vertical turn it mm-hmm. 180 and dump it into a, a stout glass as hard as you can and that'll that activates it and that's where the cascade comes and that's that's how you create that smooth soft silky creamy creamy head that that nitro beer is so famous for and, and which really really works so beautifully with a with a creamy stout like like milk stout
0: and that gorgeous that head as you described the the cascade uh, that is sort of the close up, I think. That a lot of um, drinkers, even you know mainstream drinkers who haven't had the the luck or the good fortune to come across uh, nitro milk style uh, left hands, you know, uh, uh, beer, are familiar with because you see in all the Guinness commercials dating back to time and more, the cascading, uh, head that's sort of going down the side of the pint glass rather than up. And it's just a beautiful visual. And obviously left hand, uh, you guys were able to figure that out. I love the idea here or the dynamic that you've sort of described when you're developing what would become nitro milk stout in bottles, right? This product is not yet available. We're talking about at the end of the aughts, even though, when did you, do you remember when you introduced it, the beer as a seasonal way back when?
1: I think it was nineteen ninety-eight. Um okay. winter of ninety-eight. My partner Dick had got gotten back from he'd been in Tanzania climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and traveled around Central Africa a little bit. And he came back, he's like, Hey, I I tried this this castle stout. It's, it's a it's a milk stout, kind of a style that pretty much had practically disappeared in the US. Mm-hmm. I'm only aware of one that was that was available back then. And we we knew oatmeal stout and we we kind of dug into the style and and brewed some up as as a wintertime seasonal and it was really successful and popular. So the following year we we did it in bombers and that kind. Of, I think we did it in bombers two years and then then we did it in six packs. It still as a seasonal and when and the, still the CO two just CO yeah, two yeah it was just yeah, CO yeah, two right. when the six packs hit. Then it just it started to tear and for us it was really weird. It was really weird because the first states that really adapted it most were more in the south. It's like the hottest states were drinking the stout the most. Huh. And that was, that was bizarre to us. Yeah, yeah. And, in, and in Colorado in that time, Amber, Amber Ale still was the king of, of the beer scene in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So Sawtooth was still, still crushing for us and that was still our number one. In the but home Milk Market. Stout started yeah. to grow. I think we were 16 or 17 years in when, when Milk Stout finally passed up Sawtooth which is wow. bitter basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you introduce uh left hand as uh, milk stout, excuse me, as a seasonal in the late 90s. When you when you start putting it in draft, you know, and you're nitrogenating, you know, the the kegs, so you're starting to get some of that nitro experience. What is the reception like to the draft product, the nitro draft product. I mean, obviously, you guys are getting good traction with it. Is there education that you guys find you're having to do? I mean, how familiar was your drinker in the early aughts, in the mid-aughts, with the concept of nitro? For listeners who weren't drinking at that time, can you characterize the landscape a little bit as it pertains to, you know, nitro
1: beers? Really, the the primary draft was Guinness. I mean, that's what everybody... That that was, like, the, the... nitro beer that you would see on in bars there 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 might be a couple scattered around random ones but but that was that's what people knew yeah and we are a stout but we we're on the other end of the stout spectrum you know theirs is a dry irish stout and and this is a a, a more sweet um, milk stout so creamy creamier and so we love doing side by side you know samples for people because we more frequently than not won those head head to head competitions. People mm, mm. like to drink this one better. It's, it's a little, little softer, um, creamier, more balanced. It doesn't have that little, the little dry um, bite at the end that, a, mm-hmm. that an Irish stout would have. So, so we were just out there and in draft, so draft was, was not a problem. I mean, knocking off a Guinness handle, that's, that's, a, that's challenging. But if they didn't have Guinness on and, and we could sample them, we often were able to, to get the sale. So we started we, we started getting out there pushing and it and it it started uh, you know it it started to grow and grow and grow, and but we only had CO two in bottle.
0: Right, right. So you mentioned like this idea of maybe knocking off a Guinness handle, which segues nicely into a question that I I was wondering as we as I was sort of prepping for this episode, what was. Your relationship, if any at all, with Guinness as a brand at this time. I mean, you're moving into a nitro space. Obviously, I have to imagine they don't really see you as a competitor at this point. Left Hand is not doing the type of volume that Guinness is doing uh, back then. Um, but did you have any dialogue with Guinness as a brand? Hey, we're trying to do nitro. Can you, you know, can you share some some uh, tips on like how to do it? Like, wh- what was was there a conversation there or not so much?
1: No, no, we never. Any brewery to brewery conversation, I, I wouldn't know how to how to even approach them. <laughs> Just send an email to the info at Guinness <laughs> I'd been to their brewery before, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, St James Gate, but I'd, I'd never met anybody mucky mucks from from Guinness. Yeah, yeah. No, we we basically started playing around trial and error. We understood physics, and th- there's there's companies out there selling you know, equipment that purportedly can do this well. Some of it can and some of it not as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a variety of that stuff out there. But our experience with Guinness was that they were on a different kind of gas. And from time to time, their tech in Colorado is not a Guinness guy. He's like works for the the distributor would end up screwing up all the CO2 beers on a on a dra- like eight tap system because he <laughs> was trying to get it to, to pour Guinness right.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah,
1: yeah, And as the guy who was out there trying to keep keep our beer pouring correctly, I would run across this more than once. Probably somebody that wasn't fully trained or whatever. Yeah. So we we had those kind of kind of issues. So we un- we understood there's a different gas work in here. There's different um, solubility ratios and all of this other stuff. So. We we just started working on and and doing it doing it on small scale was was really easy. Doing it on the larger scale put on a, put a, put on a handle make sure that they've got the right gas. I mean a lot of places trying to pour it and not equipped to pour it. So there's a yeah. lot there was a lot of education on the, on the technical side for for people pouring draft. But that was just like what that's what we did anyways all day long. We're always mm-hmm. out there trying to educate people. You're educating people Left and right. And I would say the most common reaction when, when they would taste this is like, oh, my God, I didn't know beer could taste like that. Yeah, yeah. And that was like fairly common. And, and a lot of people would say, well, I don't, I don't drink dark beer. It's like, what do you mean you don't drink dark beer? Oh, it's, I don't, it's not good. It's like, what's not good about it? Like, do you drink coffee? It's like, do you like chocolate? You know, it's like, do those flavors scare you? It's like, no, I love that stuff. It's like, so if you don't think about it as a beer, just think about it as flavor and then tell me what you think. And they taste it and go, oh my God. You know, that was very common reaction. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably the most common reaction. Like, I didn't know that I liked beer. I'm not surprised to hear that. I mean, I think that left-hand nitro milk stout
0: for many drinkers, including myself, is a transcendent or, like, gateway part of their drinking career, their drinking journey, right? Like, when I first came across Nitro Milk Stout, it would only have been one to two years after you guys started putting it in bottles. This would have been the early 2010s, you know, maybe 2012, 2013. I was in New York City. And it was just, you know, it was an eye-opening experience in terms of palate, in terms of mouthfeel, in terms of, you know, presentation in the glass. If, if you know, I decided to pour it instead of, uh, instead of drink out of the bottle, which I typically did. Although I'll admit to you, Eric, I did drink it out of the bottle more than once. Uh, I'm sorry. I know I was not hard pouring <laughs> as I should have been,
1: but. <laughs> I have a friend who uh, said, hey, man, I bought a six pack of your milk stout and I took it home and I, and I drank a couple and it was flat. And then, <laughs> then then, I read the label and I go, oh, I'm a dumbass. It's like – and I poured it into a glass the way it says to do it and it's brilliant. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah it, makes, it makes a difference. Well, it he and I –
0: it he uh, I'll proudly admit that I was, or not so proudly, but I will honestly admit that I I definitely made that mistake more than once. But my point is that it, it was this really eye opening beer. It was this really sort of like I, I described the the experience a moment ago as you know transcendent. Um, and I think like you get this, or I did at least this idea like oh shit like what else don't I know about beer if the, I didn't know about this, like I must not know about other shit too. Right. And so like it, it helped sort of broaden the horizon for what I expected as a drinker. Certainly, you know, from a, from a reporting perspective, it broadened my expectations for, you know, what the spectrum of flavor was out there and how people are, you know, how breweries were building businesses around it. So left-hand milk Stout nitro, I think was really in, instructive for me, um, on several different planes. Um, but Eric, I want to like sort of dial into this idea you mentioned just a moment ago or earlier in our conversation, uh, you know, you guys have this product on draft. People are loving it. You know, it is just this really excellent uh, experience. I was lucky enough that you guys decided to put it in bottles because that's how I first got to, you know, got to enjoy it when I was living in New York. Um, But was there ever a question of like whether this was even necessary? I mean, you described how expensive it was how much tinkering you guys did you weren't even sure it was possible was there a moment where you thought hey maybe this isn't worth it maybe this should be a draft only offering why bother
1: put it in bottles well that that was that was our plan but it was an internal kind of conversation that was going on and and two of our our tinkerers you know that that thought that it might be possible and i was willing to give them enough rope uh, to see if we could do it. Yeah. Um, so it was, I mean, as, as breweries, as, you know, especially in the early days, we were, we were recreating, we we're, you know, forensically digging back into history, trying to, to dig up styles or trying sure. to reproduce styles that had disappeared in the U S taking most of our inspiration from Europe. Mm-hmm. So we were used to introducing people to something that was weird. I mean we yeah. were making juju ginger you know back in back in 1994 where we're adding ginger root to a pale ale yeah. and that was just bizarre i mean people are like you can't do this this is illegal it's like <laughs> what's illegal about it <laughs> it's like right. it's not illegal well it's got it's got a an ethiopian lion in red gold and green on it it's like so it's got ginger in it it's um it's it's a great beer so we're, we're constantly trying to, to create new stuff and, and bring more people in. And ironically, Milk Stout is, I think the most effective gateway beer, you know, we were talking about that we ever, that we've ever put out Mm. because, you know, early days we would have, let's say we had Sawtooth, which we marketed as an ESB, an extra special bitter. And we had a pale ale and people go, Oh, bitter. I don't want that. I want the pale. ale I was like, Uh, actually you probably want, if the, if the bitter scares you, you should probably have the bitter because the bitter is not going to be as bitter as the pale ale, you know, trying just all of the, the ins and outs of beer, but stout, the number of people that it's converted is like more than any other beer we've got because it's unexpected. Yeah. It's, it's that, that soft, silky, unexpected. I mean, a friend of mine from my Kiwanis club, like she drank only wine and maybe some liquor, and I did a, a beer tasting for my club here at the brewery. And the next time I saw her, he goes, I hate you. I have a six pack of milk stout in my fridge now. And I was <laughs> never a beer drinker. I didn't have to worry about beer. And now now all of a sudden I realize that I like beer. And I, I think it is true that once you've cracked in, like, oh, I like stout, stout's a beer. What's with that yellow stuff? And what's with that red stuff? And what's with that that hazy stuff? And And people start to to really go they start their journey and there are a variety of entry points most people start their their entry at you know light lager that's been pretty much watered down and all the rough edges rubbed off of it so everything from there is kind of getting more and more flavor intensity and a wider range of flavors you so can only go up this, from there yeah. <laughs> we're just starting from the other end you know yeah it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. boom this is a big one and like uh, now that i know that i like sweeter beers or, or softer beers you know What's, what's all this hoppy stuff? Yeah. Yeah. What's all this lighter stuff.
0: And off you go from there. All those, what's all this sour stuff. stuff? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's all
1: this fruity stuff.
0: Yeah. Right on. When you introduce, well, uh, one more question about the, the R and D we're talking about expensive. Do you have any sense for how much money you actually wound up putting in? Like, did, have you ever, maybe it's, it's a, it's a figure that you're horrified to add up. So you never have, have you ever done the back of the napkin math on how much R and D you guys actually yeah. put out there?
1: Yeah, two years two years and a couple hundred grand. Couple hundred grand,
0: yeah. But you in in twenty eleven, this pays off. You you introduce the beer for the first time. You've rolled out just in Colorado, I'm guessing, right? What was the do you remember the rollout strategy?
1: Yeah, we start in Colorado and then we did I think we did eight. Major rollouts across the country. Mm-hmm. We would go to a to a significant market. You know, we were in Texas, we were in we were in Chicago, we were in New York, we were in Ohio. Um, we we went around and we we did a bunch of rollouts and and got it launched and it, really good good response. And that as that started to happen, you, we started getting good market data, and then the chains start to jump into it. And that kind of mm. starts pulling us into more and more states. We were only in, I don't know, 25 or 30 states back then. And, you know, it started dragging us into the rest of the country. Mm. Um, that wasn't really that wasn't really a part of the plan. It was just kind of a, a byproduct of the fact that chains wanted us and they have certain footprints and you have to have distribution in their footprint if you're going right. to get into their stores and into their sets. So that... This beer is why we actually are in 46 states now is because, you know, the market started pulling on it, which is really, really a good, a good feeling and a good experience that I will look upon those days very fondly. That's
0: got to be pretty (laughs) cool. You've got to realize like, oh man, we got a hot hand here. No, no pun intended. We got a hot left hand here. We've got something that everybody wants, maybe you know, it sounds like based on what you're describing, like to, in this on a scale or at a scope that you just really couldn't have anticipated. But that's gotta be. All, I mean, and look, it's a good problem to have, right? I'm sure any brewer would tell me the same thing. But I gotta imagine it's also pretty intense, right? Like if you're in conversations with national change and they say, "Hey, we need you to ramp up production. We need you to be able to, you know, fulfill this, you know, this volume in this many states and whatever." There's challenges there, right, Eric? That's not just but, you can't just press a button and say, "All right, cool,
1: we're scaling up." Well, there's there's huge challenges, and we're we're an independent craft brewer. I mean, mm. my partner and I were at the Air Force Academy together. I mean, we're, we're not we're not like silver spoon kind of kids. We 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 were in the Air Force. We we got out. We started a brewery. We got some friends and family money, and we started growing. So you start. We saw ten years of double-digit growth. I mean, a couple of years we were wow. growing fifty percent a year. And Whoa. So when that starts to happen, it's it's quite a crazy and scary ride because you're, you're dumping millions of dollars a year into expansion. We're yep. building buildings. We're expanding buildings. We're adding tanks. We're adding equipment. We're getting a faster bottling line. We're buying new keg line. We're you know we we ended up buying a, a canning line when when we started canning this as well, so it was it was just going it was going crazy, and we were having to plan where's all of this cash coming from right so every year for the planning, like well, you know we have to operate profitably, we have to generate enough cash flow, then we have to borrow money. so it was just this it was constant a constant uh you know running the business when i think it was in one th- 3 year period we put something like 9 million bucks into the brewery whoa and 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 we don't have we don't have a big brother we're not owned by a big <laughs> right, company
0: right so right
1: we we were just having to figure it out on our own with uh with our bankers and and operating to be able to generate enough cash to to keep it going this is that back was in the year, yeah i bet you man it, this is so this is back in the early 2010s yeah 06 to to about twenty, you know, fifteen was just you know off the charts.
0: But it, and it sounds like it accelerated quite a bit after you guys figured out how to
1: bottle it. The yeah, beer. yeah, Ab- yeah gotcha. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It just it just went it went it, it was going, and then then it just really went. We went from eight thousand barrels, like eighty thousand barrels in ten years.
0: Whoa, ten x volume, ten x yeah. capacity.
1: Yeah, that's a yeah. lot of
0: that's a lot of stainless steel that you had to buy over the course of a decade.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, eight figures. Easily. Oh my goodness!
0: So, what was the? This is a slight detour, but I think some of our more trade oriented listeners would be curious to know. You know, in the late part of last decade, you know, 2017, 18, 19, banks were had, you know, sort of become apprised of craft brewing as an industry. There's maybe um, more appetite for, you know, debt from the craft brewing industry. What was it like, you know, what was your relation? I'm sure you had relationships with local banks that you had borrowed from before, but you start to have to go out and find capital, find debt from, you know, at a, at a level you'd never had before. Were people, did bankers, did the financial industry understand, like, the pitch that you were making? Was there challenges... On the financial level, there.
1: Yeah, I would say um, first of all, I had a I have a really strong board and mm. quite, uh, quite a group of financially savvy people, and a lot of those guys came to us when when we bought Tavernash and did the merger in 1998. So mm-hmm. we we acquired people that that knew knew a lot about about business and financing and, and all that stuff. So that was really helpful, and they they definitely gave us a lot of good advice through those years. There was the yeah, bankers kind of woke up and go, yeah, this is a business that's growing. We can, we can lead into it. You'll also recall private equity certainly came roaring into the space because they thought that they could they could make some money in in the space as well. Sure. And and things started to get really, really tight and crowded. But we've always we always ran quite conservatively and focused on keeping keeping a pretty strong balance sheet and owning our real estate and also we have four different banks that we that we currently have relationships with and we try to keep everything broken so not everything's cross collateralized mm-hmm. so you you can use different assets to to do things independently of of each bank and they all tend to know each other around here anyway some are some are bigger and and some are more community banks. But maintaining good relationships with those guys, making sure they ha- have a really clear understanding of our business, being, trans- you know, being really transparent. I mean, it's like here's the good, here's the bad. It's been really, really – that's been really, really helpful. That mm-hmm. and owning the real estate um, and having a long-term strategic vision where we're not looking for a big transaction to sell out. I could have done that 10 years ago. Yeah. And it was a choice that we made that we weren't going to go there. We feel that there's more value in left hand in the way we're able to contribute to the community, the beer community, to our local communities, the communities where we, where we sell, you know, like bike MS, we're the national beer sponsor for that. And right. Raised, right. Like approaching, approaching $8 million wow. know, for, for MS. Just incredible. Getting out there and riding bikes and, and using beer to make friends and raise money for a for a really important cause, we like what we're able to do as an operating business for the, for the community, for our people, for for the next next generation. And having businesses that are firmly rooted in their community and that are focused on more than just maximizing every penny of profit that they can out of the business is is a little more gratifying than just a pure mercenary approach in, in our in our ethos. Sure, sure.
0: This is in 2011. 2011- as the first year that that Milk Stout on Nitro appears in bottles for the American consumer, that's also the year, listener, if you don't remember your craft beer history, your beer industry history, that's also the year that Anheuser-Busch InBev completes uh, its acquisition. It had already owned like a, a big minority stake in Goose Island, but it bought the rest of it in 2011. And that would kick off... You know, a, a feeding frenzy, a buying bonanza, whatever you want to call it, led mostly by Ann Bush InBev, but also Molson Coors gets a little piece of the puzzle. Constellation kind of infamously uh, comes in hot and spends a ton of money um, on Ballast Point and uh, and and you know ditches it just a few years later. They they made a big mistake, a billion dollars. But what what uh, Eric, what you're describing is j- there's this moment where you know, all of a sudden big, quote unquote, strategic partners, uh, you know, want to get much more exposure to the craft brewing industry. Now that, that has changed. I mean, by the end of last decade, I think some of those strategic partners had a bit of a hangover. Uh, Earlier this year in 2023, we saw Anheuser-Busch InBev cut bait on about half of its, Um, acquired craft portfolio, um, selling a bunch of those off to Tilray brands, which is a big cannabis conglomerate. But at the time, that was not what was happening. At the time, we were sort of watching that ramp up rather than coming down the other side of it. That's a big windup for my next question, Eric, which is where does Milk Stout Nitro fall? You know, as you start seeing that, um, you know, that all happen in 2011, 2012, you know, early last decade... Um, You've got this new product that's bringing you into national chains. It's bringing you into a broader distribution footprint. Um, Those are positive things, but it strikes me as also you have broader flanks now, right? You have more exposure to chain retail where the big guys, that is their bread and butter, right? That's where they... They sort of own shelf space. They they you know write the planograms. They do category management. That's a different world that you all of a sudden get pulled into because you have this terrific you know uh, milk stout on nitro. You have this bottled this bottled beer that everyone wants. Can you characterize that for listeners? Like what you know sort of the broader craft beer landscape is shifting as you're having this big hit on your hands
1: yeah we're going from what a couple thousand breweries to you know all of a sudden you know, it's like almost 5x now right sure um, we're, we're so starting just about 10,000 like a yep. couple thousand we were we were on a tear and we were mm. just hanging on trying trying to keep up as it <laughs> as it dragged it dragged us out but exactly our our logistical lines our our line ground lines of communication were, sure. were getting stretched all the way across the country and into a into a few other countries you know across the the different ponds yeah yeah so um so we were getting we were getting dragged out there and we were also at the same time thinking this is a bubble you know mm. craft craft beer is the it girl it's ubiquitous it's on right. tv shows it's everywhere Everywhere you turn around, you go to the Craft Brewers Conference and there are 400 distributors sure. and they're there to talk to each other, but they're really there to, to pitch, you know, brands to join them. Yep. It's, it's the, like that. that was the feeding frenzy for us when we saw that that they would take anything that you made mm. or like this can't, this can't last. <laughs> There's no way we, well, we, we'd lived through the first shakeout already, right? Sure. Back in the, the late nineties, early so. odds, sure. we, we'd already been through that seven or so turbulent years where craft did not grow. It actually shrank for several of those years mm-hmm. in terms of the number of operating breweries and growth basically was at zero. Yeah. Um, I can remember Dave Edgar in the early days at at CBC going, craft beer sales are at an all-time high. But there was a couple years where that was like a couple $10,000 higher maybe for the whole country or whatever. It was like flat. Yeah. So we we were thinking there's so many people getting in. There's so many people that are getting in that aren't in it because they're here to save the world. They're in it because they're going to make a fast buck. Sure. And they're going to sell out. There's breweries that were starting up that hadn't brewed any beer that were... (laughs) pitching I, I, i'm i sat down with all the big breweries and they go we're getting calls from breweries that that ask if we want to buy them and they haven't even made any beer yet they don't have any distribution that's that's if, if you're paying attention i mean all the signs were there right it's like sure. it's not like sure it can't go up forever in the in the market is not infinite this is this is a bubble so we were preparing for the bubble and we were taking a lot of steps to make sure that that we were ready for the shakeout you know to to where we are today, where it certainly feels like a shakeout. Um, lenders are not nearly as anxious to lend to you. Landlords are cranking up rents, and a lot mm. of breweries are either moving or mo- merging or folding, you know, yeah, yeah, closing down or or whatever. I mean, the the, the crunch is here, and we are in so many places that we, you've got to find your new level. I mean with with five times the number of breweries i mean certainly our sales are down um over over the last several years and you've got to you've got to adapt you've yeah. got to learn to adapt and you've got to you've got to run your business at the level it is not the level you wish it was so it a lot of a lot of hard hard decisions and a lot of morphing and and changing what we do you know we've we've tried to in order to keep focus on milk stout kind of our our lead out of, out of state and in, in state we're known for other beers too, but, but out, of, out of Colorado, the milk stouts are our lead and nitros our kind of our, our, our gig. So the sure. peanut butter milk stout, that's kind of a natural. The candy cane milk stout this year, I wish we'd have bought more packaging because that thing <laughs> blew up. We could probably sell two times as much or three times as much candy cane milk stout. It's just, we just had one state refuse to take their their order and we, we turned around to our local wholesale and was like, we'll take as much as you got. Yeah, wow. So it's already selling out left and right. And then, you know, we're working on other things. I know this is about stout, but nitro, we've got this Belgian white nitro. Cool. Um, which is it's the first one in the world as far as we know. So we've, we've played with this for quite a while. Yeah. And for th- those of you that don't know, our head brewer is Gary Glass. Does that name ring a bell? Used to run the American Homebrew Association. Right on. And um, this was his, one of his award-winning homebrew recipes, actually. So we started tinkering with that, and we started nitrogenating it, and it's 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 fan, it's actually fantastic. We we've, we've done run a couple of production batches, and we're not really rolling it out until till next spring. But yeah. it's starting to hit the market in a limited way, and and we're we're hoping to try to keep some of that focus on what's something that we do that makes a difference on a national scale because there's no way if you're out there just competing on IPA that you're you're going to be able to stay relevant there's impossible 20 30,000 50,000 IPAs out there right so it's just not a it's not a place not a sandbox big enough for everybody yeah but doing something unique whether it's milk stout or, or Belgian white nitro just trying to see if if there's a way to stay in national distribution and on the the chain store sets shelves you know in the face of quite significant retrenchment by sure. by so many different breweries I was just sitting in a at the Colorado Brewers Guild had their summit a couple weeks ago and one of the talks I sat in a guy got up and he was basically pitch was aimed at breweries significantly smaller than us I would say but his whole pitch was here's how you evaluate your costs and your margin and your business, and yeah, you might be only selling, you know, five hundred barrels through your tasting room, whatever, and five thousand barrels in distribution. But here, let me show you why you need to focus on your tasting room, and you should not be focused on trying to outcompete the distributing breweries because there's no money there, right? The, right. The, the margins are so tight, and the resources are are so vast. So. I think breweries in our space are we're in, we're definitely in the in the squeeze zone right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're distributing brewery. We're in national distribution. How do you how do you maintain that and how do you how do you stay relevant? That's those are huge questions right now. That's
0: a huge challenge and it's one that's being faced not only by left hand but also by yeah, like you said, breweries in that that tranche right, like that that middle of the of the market i mean not that the liquid is is middling but in terms of volume the middle of the market more or less if you stay low to the ground like those small breweries Uh, that you're mentioning, man, there's a business there. It's a totally different business than the one that left hand is in, or certainly that the one that, you know, the Sierra Nevadas of the world and the, and the Boston beer companies of the world are in, but you know, you can, you can make that work, but once you go distribute it, it's a totally different ball game. I hear you on that. That's something I've certainly has come up a ton in my reporting as I've spoken other, other
1: breweries. Yeah. We, we look at our business as, as two really distinct parts, the, the own premise, Um, and, and the distribution, and and when we started, there were, there were no tap room breweries, really. You were either a brew pub with a restaurant or you were distributing brewery, packaging, distributing. That was it. So that was, that's our DNA, but our tasting room, we, we put a lot of focus on that because that builds brands and there's good margin coming through there. And then that's why we started a place down in Denver in Rhino, Mm. you know, as well, just to raise the brand flag in, in the biggest city in the state. But, also, to, to to focus on there's you can generate margin on your own beer like 10x and more you know wow. on a on a keg of beer, um 15x um that than trying to just stay in distribution it's a lot of capital for a skinny margin yeah yeah and it's a tough Sorry, balance I here. just wanted to make sure uh, time to kind of anyone that's interested in the the why's and wherefores. The the tap room explosion. There's a reason for that because of course. you can make a living on a relatively small amount of beer, and that's why the BA. When I was on the board, we had long conversations. We started the tap room classification mm. so that that segment, which is the largest segment in the in the country now, that, that segment would have significant representation on the on the Brewers Association board.
0: Yeah, that provides me. I think a segue. Let's see here. I think I've got it, Eric. The taproom explosion in the back half of last decade and into this one, pandemic notwithstanding, but there's this idea of, like, you have to own these channels, right? You can generate more margin, and then you have a way forward um, in a way that, you know, distributed craft has much different and tougher sledding at the moment. It strikes me as sort of a nice uh, ellipsis or a way to get back to what we what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which is that Milk Stout started as a taproom product, the nitro one did, I mean, it started as a draft product and you distributed to some extent, but like you got to kind of hand sell it. You got to kind of, you know, interact with your drinkers, uh, to understand, you know, what they liked about this before you had to go out and develop it, um, as a packaged, uh, product and milkstown nitro in bottles hits in 2011. When did cans hit to 2018
1: or so? 2015. 15 is when we got got that up and up and running yeah, yeah. with and those are widget I cans. was going to say cans so, have the widgets in them right okay yeah, cool. we, yeah we had a big debate here whether we do it widgetless or a widget and it was definitely a split decision yep. here in the company but we decided to go widget because and the winning argument ultimately was yeah we can hard pour out of a can but uh how many people are going to do that <laughs> How many are going to go right, Dave right, right. Infante next to the swimming pool and pour it into a glass? <laughs> Probably not.
0: Yeah. For every one uh, true connoisseur, there are at least nine and maybe 99 Americans who just want
1: to drink a can of beer, Eric, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and and that that was the winning argument as we sat around this table, you know, trying to sway our companions. It's like, if you're drinking out of the can, the widget gives you a better experience. Right. Because it, it does the work for you, Right. So that's that's why we we use a widget can. Yeah. that makes sense.
0: But so, uh, so you guys introduce cans. But this all starts as a as a as a draft product. This is where you first start tinkering and the, and this is where you really see it start to get traction. And that leads to the 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 lightning ride or the roller coaster that, you know, left hand would get on, and it's been a tremendous success. and it brings you into all of these different. Uh, these different states, these new accounts, it pulls you into chain. Sometimes it's, you know, you stopped pushing and all of a sudden you get pulled. And, and as you described, it can be quite intense. But what I'm getting at here is we see a taproom model and we see sort of like the own premise model, you know, being one that's viable here for some small breweries, especially if you're starting out and you don't want to go distributed, that's the way to go. What what I wanted to ask you, the long and the short of it is, does something like Milkstown Nitro in bottle, does that happen in 2023? Let's say, you you know, like, could such a product be developed? You know, it's not that it wasn't expensive at the time, but there was this moment for craft beer where you did have maybe a little bit more runway to tinker and to explore and to get creative, and the drinker was willing to come with you on that, on that journey a little bit more. At least that's my perception of it. I'm curious of your perception as someone who introduced this pioneering product at a time when uh, drinkers were maybe a little bit more receptive to it, When at a time when, um, you know, there was maybe a little bit more of a buffer between you and the buzzsaw, so to speak. Uh, does something like a Milk Stout Nitro uh, get invented in a tight market like this?
1: The my. I have an answer, I have several answers. The, the, the first thing is, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is I, I grew up and went to high school in the golden age of rock and roll, mm. where everybody knew bands, your access to music was limited, you know, you had vinyl, you had cassettes, you had eight tracks. Um, CDs came along afterwards. So we were all talking about the same bands, and these are bands that are that people everyone knows: Led Zeppelin, The Who, ACDC, dc um, like Pink Floyd. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. two. I mean, all of these bands they were just they were seminal, and everyone knew them. And there were there were the limited there was more limited selection. Now everything is so democratized and granular. You know, you can get if you're a band, you can get on on the interwebs, and boom, your your song is out there. So. It's the democratization of music, but the building of really big brands, unless you're Taylor Swift or somebody like that, you know, it, it becomes less and less the norm or they're more and more unusual, perhaps. Mm. In the same way, when we were blowing up, when there was 2,000 breweries, there was a lot of space. And where I'm heading is I want to talk about your local multi-tap. I mean, those were the places that built craft. I mean, Chicago, believe it or not, for those who remember back in the late 90s, early 2000s, up until they had the World Beer Cup Craft Brewers Conference there, was you could go to Chicago and hit all the key accounts in one day. Wow. The the Map Room and Hop Leaf (laughs) and Delilahs. I mean, there was only only a few places that you needed to go because if you could sell there, it was going to work. And now there's there's a hundred breweries in, in Chicago alone. So the, the market has d- definitely changed and the tap house model, There's still great ones out there, but they're far fewer and they're under duress. They're mm-hmm. under major duress because all of us with our tap rooms are putting the pressure on them. Sure. You know, and we're, we're peeling off business and, to the extent that some tap rooms carry other brands as well, you get a more curated experience. There's one right down the river from us that operates as a brew pub, but most of their, their beer sales, they're a shoe store, and they sell beer in the back. What? And they got, tw- they got <laughs> 20 beers on tap from, from all around the area. Man, Colorado, over there all Colorado is wild, man. <laughs> it's, it's a running, running store, athletic shoe store with a, with a bar on the back. It's awesome. <laughs> so, but your multi taps—I mean, some of the big ones that we all knew and loved—they're gone. Sure, they're, that model is just is more challenging, and I think all of those things combine make it—it's certainly not impossible. And people are going to catch lightning in a bottle from time to time, and they're going to do something that's really cool that has a reason to be in the market. But there are going to be fewer and fewer opportunities for that. There's way more distraction. Getting anybody's attention and bandwidth is is a serious serious challenge. Getting people to pay attention more than once sure. is a really serious challenge. And um,
0: a customer or a distributor, by the way, it's yeah. a,
1: <laughs> distributors are shedding <laughs> brands left and right. Sure, SKU rationalization is on now. Every year, buyers, you know, the warehouse buyers and managers are tasked to cut ten percent of their SKUs or whatever. To make the distributors more efficient and they continue to consolidate sheans have been you know big player in the craft beer distribution business are are selling off all of their their uh yeah that's right Yep, yep and we were with every single one of them so that's creates great turmoil for us and you know we're out there looking for for distributors that aren't even bigger where we're even further down their priority list. So we're actually out there actively looking for smaller wholesalers now in those markets where we're changing. Because in order to have the attention on the brand, you've got to be high enough up in the priority list to, to get some of the attention. And we can't afford anymore to have 30-something reps scattered all over the country. Right, right. This doesn't but, work.
0: And a beer like Milkstown Nitro needs that attention. I mean, it has a established brand. People know it. There's no doubt about that. But it is also not the sort of thing where you know a distributor rolls into Kroger's and says, "All right, you need a light lager? Cool, I got one. You need you need uh, a hazy IPA? Cool, I got another." Uh, it it needs that special care. It needs to be to some extent to to hand sold. It needs the story to be told. And if it is, you open retailers' eyes. You open drinkers' eyes. You 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 give them that transcendent experience that I was describing earlier. But you're right. Like that at a time like this, I can understand why that's that's, you know, maybe a little bit more challenging than it than it than it was even a few years
1: ago. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Kroger's for example, I mean, very real example. We've we've got a chain team and we're really focused on making pitches uh, across the whole country and using our our local our regional reps to to supplement that yep. effort. Yeah. And it's, it's milk out, it's milked out, it's peanut butter milked out, it's now Belgian white nitro and then some seasonal stuff. That's about all you can hope for these days. Yep. Yep. And a lot of distributors won't even bring it in, even if it's pre-sold to some extent, unless you have chain commitments. Wow. I mean that's that's where it's going. The independents that that built the industry are are now under under severe duress. In Colorado, when we started, the 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 chains couldn't sell anything other than three two beer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: now now the chains have not only full strength beer, but now they just got wine, mm-hmm. and we're seeing liquor stores getting really crushed. I mean, sure. when, if you're out in the market, you're seeing empty coolers, half empty shelves, wow. and I think they're just waiting for their lease to run out. Wow. Um, so it's and I know it's happening in other states. I know it's happening in Ohio, for example. Yep. As all these states change, and and the big big companies are able to to Finally, get laws through and passed, and, cha- and change the way the alcohol business structure is working. It has huge long-term impacts on where you're selling beer to, mm. you know, to whom you're able to sell beer. And for for us, I mean, we love the the independents because we can walk in and make a sale. But the the needle gets moved at the chain level at this point.
0: Yeah, that's where all the volume is, right? I mean, at, at one point, it was up to like eighty percent of. Beer volume during the pandemic uh, through supermarket alone.
1: And for us, yeah, when the draft business went from, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a month to sixteen hundred dollars wow. a month. My um, God. <laughs> you, you're cranking up more packaging until your uh, packaging supplier runs out of supply
0: right just came through that fire man all the cardboard all the aluminum of course there were there were shortages
1: in the supply yeah. chain throughout you've been through you've been through the ringer eric luckily luckily for us we have both a bottling line and a canning line because otherwise we would have been we were hosed and it was, we were getting hosed for quite a while but um it would have been even worse you know without without some options sure sure
0: Eric, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I was hoping to, as a, as a way of wrapping up, um, maybe to, to if you can reach back in the memory bank to, to 2011 um, when Milk Sound Nitro first becomes available in bottles. Do you remember how you pitched it to the drinker that didn't understand it? I was hoping maybe for listeners who maybe haven't encountered uh, Milk Stout Nitro in the wild, they could hear the pitch from you on, "Hey, here's here's what this is. Here's why it's different. Here's why you're gonna love it."
1: Yeah, the general the general pitch is, "Hey, you wanna you wanna try try a beer? And like, say you're at a beer fest and you're pouring three beers. You're pouring like we're pouring a, a pilsner and and sawtooth, a are bitter and a stout. And it's like, hey, what what do you like? It's like, oh, I don't know. You know what what should I try?" It's like, I've already had that one. It's like, well, you should try our stout. It's like, oh, I don't drink stout. It's like, what do you mean you don't drink stout? That's a big statement. It's like, there's a lot of different stouts out there. It's like, you should try this one. It's like, oh, no, I don't like it. It's like, okay, it's free. I'm going to sample you. And if you don't like it, you don't have to drink it. But do you like coffee? Do you like chocolate? Most people like one or both. I mean, sure. most 90-something are going to say yes to one of those. You know, 80% are going to say, 75 are going to say yes to both. Sure. And it's like, all right, just think about those flavors, try it. And that's that's where, you know, you got like a an 80% win rate on people that don't like dark beer or don't like beer at all. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm I'm not going to like it. And they try and like, oh, I like it. Or, or it's, it ranges from, it's not that bad or it's not as bad as I thought to, this is the best beer I ever had in my yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. So you get a, a quiet, it's generally, you know, if you're doing a consumer like survey of, you know, do you like it? It's like, you're getting nines and tens most of the time. Yeah. It's nines and tens. Yeah. So it, it was really fun. And it almost started off as, as just a cynical joke. It's like, what should I try? It's like, you should try the stout, you know? And because nobody's going to say they want to try right. a stout. right. Until they've tried it. And then they realize that, They've been missing out all those years they've been on the planet of legal drinking age. They've been screwing it up. They they've not expanded their horizon. <laughs> and you helped
0: expand it, uh, with this pivotal beer that was the first, uh, American craft, uh, beer bottled on nitro, man. You, you, uh, you changed a lot of minds. I think, uh, Eric Wallace, thank you so much for joining us on Taplines. It's been a pleasure chatting. Uh, you know keep doing what you're doing and I think everyone's I'm certainly looking forward to going out and finding some of that Belgian white on nitro I'm going to go pick up a pick up a six pack as soon as I can lay hands on it
1: use our beer finder it's going to be making its way out here through the winter and into the spring well I look forward to it
0: all right Eric thank you again so much and uh, good luck with that construction and uh, enjoy the rest of your day thanks a lot Dave all right Taplines is recorded in Richmond Virginia and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire VinePair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course a big thank you to you, yes you listener for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you.
1: I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.